Well, one of my favorite things about this time of year is the way that it just feels like the day is getting closer, especially right now, like the day is looming really close. And there is this feeling along with that of, on one hand, I can't wait. The day is almost here. The day is coming. We're getting more and more excited. And then at the same time, it also kind of puts a, a little uh, reminder in your heart. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, that means I really need to go pick up the ham. And that means that I really need to, there's only like a couple more days to order stuff on Amazon for to get here on time. And so you got this like ever-growing task list as the day gets closer eager to see the day come and realizing we got a few things we need to get straight before the day comes. That's actually really instructive for Christians because that feeling is just about how we ought to feel about the big day, not the day that we set aside to celebrate Jesus' birth, but the day that God the Father has set aside for his return, right? Same way we ought to feel about that. The day's coming. It's almost here. And I better get some stuff sorted out. I better be ready. He better find me working when he comes. Very similar to the feeling you probably have about Christmas right now. That's instructive to us. And things kind of shift for us in the church as well right now. We move this morning from talking about things that are connected to Jesus coming, like his second coming and ways that he is still with us and things that are near that to this morning we start truly in earnest talking about his coming on the first time, uh, the day when he came to be with us. And we're doing that by asking one question, both today and on Christmas Eve. The sermon will answer the same question. And that's really simply, uh, why did he come? What what was his purpose for coming here to earth? Uh, The Bible gives us a lot of answers to that. There's no one silver bullet answer. A whole lot of reasons that the Father sent his Son to earth. We're going to look at two of them that are two of the most significant. And one way you could think of it is something that I've found myself saying a lot over the last year, which is that we have a lot of problems as people, uh, but really two problems overshadow all of them. Of all the problems we have, there are two that are, that are just insurmountable in our own power. One of those is our certain and coming death, and the other one is that we have sinned against God. Of, of all the troubles you have, None of the other ones are that big, right? Your two biggest problems are death and sin. One way you can think about this sermon and the next sermon is I want to show you how Jesus coming to earth solves both of those problems for us. This week, or even this Sunday, we look at how does he solve the problem of death for us? Uh, we, we have a lot of troubles, right? And many of them, especially as you get older, are just like hints that the day is coming, right? As the body gets weaker, uh, gravity starts winning a lot of battles, and you just become reminded in yourself, uh, this is all happening because I know how the story's going to end, right? Uh, I I had a friend joke at me uh, this week, and he said it a few times, I know I'm getting older because I got more doctors than I got friends, right? Uh, And that's kind of how it is, right? I mean, it's funny, and and it's tragic at the same time. You're watching your friends go, your body is going down, and this is all whispering the same problem to you. It's coming for you too, right? This is the biggest, one of the most insurmountable problems we have. We just can't shake the sense that, yes, one day death comes for us too. Today we focus on how Jesus solves that for you. Another big problem that we'll look at on Christmas Eve is our sin against God. The fact that 
when we die, we are going to meet the God that we have offended and sinned against. That's also a huge problem. On Christmas Eve, we'll look at how Jesus solves that for us. This morning, we'll look at how he solves death for us. We're going to do that by reading some of Jesus' very words about the very reason he came to earth in John chapter 6. So if you haven't opened there, go ahead and turn to John 6. We're going to read verses 37 through 40 this morning. Here's what our Lord says. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. These are the words of our Lord. Through those words that Jesus spoke long ago, he calls everyone to believe in him so that on the last day they will be raised from the dead to eternal life. And my prayer for you this morning is just that simple. My prayer is that you would indeed believe in this Jesus Christ so that you too, along with many of the people next to you, can receive resurrection from the dead on the last day when he returns. May the Lord be pleased to do that among us this morning. The backstory here is that Jesus has just performed one of his great miracles that you may have heard about, the multiplying of the bread and the fish. He took two fish and five loaves of bread and multiplied it to be enough to feed 5,000 hungry people. And there was more left over than five loaves and two fish, a great miracle that he performed. Well, in the aftermath of that, uh, you know, for us, that's a, a sign that we fi- try to figure out how to interpret. We ask, what does that mean? Uh, for them, it was a little different. For them, it was real bread and real fish that filled up their bellies, and, and they were hungry, right? And what happens when you, when you feed somebody really satisfying food? They come back, right? What happens when a dog comes on your porch and you feed it, right? Comes back the next day, right? Or if you run a restaurant and somebody comes in and they sit down and they eat and they have a good meal, they're more likely to come back to your restaurant than they are to go to another restaurant because that's the place where they got fed and full and where their bellies were satisfied. You feed somebody, they tend to come back. So in the following days, Jesus starts noticing all those people are coming back and they're following him. And he looks at them and he says, well, you're following me because I, because I fed you, because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he said, I love feeding you, but actually I want something bigger for you. And that's why I did the loaves, right? They, they were coming back because they wanted temporary food. They wanted enough to live for another day. And Jesus says to them, what I want to give to you is, is eternal food, right? I, I want you to be able to live forever. And that is why I have come. So he calls himself to them the bread of life. He says, I'm, I'm the bread of life. You shouldn't be coming for the bread. You should be coming for, for me. And then he begins to say these words that we read, that the reason he came was to lose no one that the Father gives to him, but to raise us all up to eternal life. If we were to summarize all the words we just read in Scripture into one sentence, it would be this. It would be that one reason God sent his Son to earth was to secure your resurrection from the dead if you would believe in him. 
One reason God sent his son to earth, there were many, one of them was to secure your resurrection from the dead if you would believe in him. We'll spend this morning looking at small statements in those words we read that all add up to that one statement. If you want the whole thing, that's the whole thing right there. Uh, Let's dive into several different things that Jesus says here that add up to that. This tells us, by the way, before we do that, this tells us why all the details of the Christmas story are the way they are. Why did the angel appear to Zechariah and Elizabeth conceive and bear John the Baptist and then Zechariah could speak again? And all those details of that story we love and we just read here. Why did the Lord do that? Why did he send his son to earth? Part of it was to secure your resurrection from the dead if you would believe in him. Uh, Why did the angel then appear to Mary and tell her that she would have a child even though she was a virgin and she would bear Jesus and he would save his people from their sins, the angel would tell Joseph. Why all of that? Part of the reason for all of that was to secure your resurrection from the dead if you would believe in him. Why, for all of the details, why was it that a census was called and Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem and the baby was born there in Bethlehem? Why that detail? Part of it was to secure your resurrection from the dead if you would believe in him. So we'll look at several statements here that add up to that statement here. First, uh, first point today, God sent his son. And we see that in verse 38. Let's look at verse 38 together. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right, so you see that at the very end, him who sent me, right? God sent his son down to earth. We see this said in other places in John 2. You, you might be familiar with John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? It was the father's act of giving the son and sending the son for the same reason that's said here, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Very same truth proclaimed there that is proclaimed here. That means that Jesus didn't come down to earth because he was in the mood for an earth visit, right? It's not because he felt like coming down that he came down. His ultimate reason for coming down was that his father sent him down and he accomplished his father's will. In the same way, he will not return when he feels like returning, No, we saw two weeks ago, he already feels like returning, right? He already wants to come back for his bride. He will return when his father, who has appointed the day, says it is time to come down, right? He came sent by his father. And when he did, he didn't do the things that he felt like doing, right? He did his father's will, right? I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Or he says elsewhere in John, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, right? What's he doing? He's walking around, doing all these miracles, calling all these disciples, dying, and then rising from the dead. He's doing what his father wants him to do. He's accomplishing his father's mission. He would even pray later as he is about to be betrayed and then crucified. Father, if it be possible that this cup be taken from me, then take this cup from me, right? Yet... Not as I will, but as you will, right? So here he is accomplishing his father's will, putting his own desires and human desires and what his flesh wants to do aside to say, I got a mission from my father and I'm going to do this. He does this as one who is sent by the father in heaven. There's some wonder and, and some glory there. 
Because this makes God so much better than us and so much different from us. I don't know about you, but I have some places where someone did something to hurt me, right? Those people in that place hurt me. And when last time I was there, somebody did something that hurt me. Maybe you have some places like that. Uh, And I think the last thing that I want to do is go back to that place and be with those people again, right? Uh, This is our nature, right? The, The people who hurt us and offend us, it's natural to pull yourself away from those people, isn't it? Uh, And generally, you can know who you've offended in life by watching and seeing who pulls away from you. If they're pulling away, they're either afraid of you or they're offended by you, and you know who you need to go after. Because it's just our nature to say, okay, you did something I don't like, you offended me, and we are more distant now. We want to pull ourselves away from the people that have offended us. And the very last thing we want to do is go seek out the place and the people where those people did those awful things to us and mistreated us. But can you see how very different our Father is? Can you see how different Jesus is? He says, that place where they have offended me so much, that's the place I'm going to go. Those people who offend me continually, he says, those are the people I'm going to go and visit. Countless planets he has made in the universe. He said, that's that one that is full of people who have sinned against me. That's the place that I am going to go to. This is how, how different uh, our Christ is from us. And what may be more amazing than that, I mean, if I can think of things I really don't want to do, going, going back to some of those places where people mistreated me is certainly one of them, but I can think of something I'd even be less likely to do and that is to send my son to those people, right? After what they did to me, what are they going to do to my son if I send my son there? That's the very last thing I'd ever do. But how different our father is when he says, I will send my son to them, not at risk that they might mistreat him, but knowing full well how much they are going to mistreat him. He said, my love for them beats deeply enough that I will send my son to them anyhow. Friends, there are a lot of ways that we are like God. We're made in God's image. A lot of ways we're like him, but but he is not like us. He is so different and so much better than we are. He looks at those that sin against them and he says, I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to go after them and bring them back to me. I'm not going to cut them off for me forever. He is so much better than we are. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that when we deserve for him to to just shun us and put the whole planet away, he said, I'm going to go visit it and I'm going to bring many of them back to me. That's a good God. So Jesus came, sent by God to accomplish the Father's will. Part of the Father's will, it says, was to give many people to him. Right? So he's got a plan. He's like, got a lot of people, and I'm going to give them to you. And we see that in the first part of verse 37. Let's look at that together. The first half of 37, he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And so we get another point from that. Every person the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. 
Uh, just kind of says that plainly there. So, so part of the Father's will then is I've got this group of people set aside and I am giving them to my son. And you'll find out who they are because they're going to come to my son. All the Father gives to me will come to me. And he refers to them later as those the Father has given to me as if it has already been done. Now, some of us, if we think too hard about that, would be a little uncomfortable with that, right? It challenges a few things that we believe, and we wonder, how can that be true if some of these other things I believe is true? How can he already have set the people aside who are going to come to Jesus? Uh, a few things we have to do there. One, we have to let Jesus challenge our theology, right? He likes to say things that make us uncomfortable, and if you followed him for a while, you know he's got a habit of doing that. So we don't let him say stuff like that that makes us uncomfortable. Secondly, I do want you to see how beautiful that concept is because it's actually the case that the free offer of the gospel depends on this logic that Jesus is using here. We see that in the second half of the verse. Now, the first half says, all the Father who gives to me will come to me. The second half says this, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. So we see there, the Son must receive everybody who comes to him. Why must the Son receive everyone who comes to him? Well, verse 39 answers that for us. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. So, from Jesus' perspective, why is it that he must receive every person who comes to him? Because that's his Father's will, right? He came here to do his Father's will. So, he sees a poor sinner coming to him, saying, I want forgiveness, I want mercy, and he hears his father's instructions, I have given you that person. Receive that person. Cast none of these people out who come to you. Receive them all and lose none of them. That gives great security to anyone who is willing to come to Jesus. If you're willing to come to him, his instructions from his father, you could even say his command, his orders from his father are, Everyone who comes to you, I have given to you. Receive every last one of them. Do not ever cast one of them away. Don't lose one of them and raise them all up on the last day. That means not only does Jesus delight to receive all who come to him, he's got instructions from his father to receive all who come to him. That is such good news for anyone who is hesitant to come to Jesus, or anyone who feels like they are too far gone, like Jesus would accept all those other people who come to him, but he's not going to accept me because I have done too much. Right? A lot of people feel like that. There are so many people who will not come to Jesus because they're afraid he's not going to accept them because they've gone too far. And usually the conversation goes something like this. Usually, usually I might talk to someone like this and they'll say, well, I know he's willing to save those other people. He's very graceful. I've heard the gospel preached, but you don't understand what I've done, right? And then it's, it's so it's almost fun to tell them there are so many people like you who feel this way, right? It, 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 so many people think they're the only one that God wouldn't have grace for, but you're not alone. There's a lot of people who feel that way. But then they'll almost always say the same thing back. Well, yeah. Those other people are wrong. God would accept them, but, but not me, right? God, God wouldn't accept me 
and so many, it's so tragic, there's so many who will not come to Jesus for that one reason. They think they wouldn't be accepted if they came. Several things I want you to know if that's you. First, you're not the one person who's not good enough for Jesus. You're one of seven billion people who are not good enough for Jesus. Amen? Right? Every last one of us is not good enough for Jesus. But whatever it is that you think you're, you've got, the, the, whatever it is you think that's tainting you or making you just too unholy to come to him, I want you to know that he sees it. He knows about it already. The father sees it, and the father knows about it already, and the father has already told the son, if she comes to you, if he comes to you, receive him, receive her. Do not cast him out. Do not cast her out. Do not ever let them go and raise him or her up on the last day. If Jesus were to, as you fear, look upon your sin and say that you have gone too far and you cannot come to him, or that maybe better, if you were to come to him, he would not receive you. Friend, he would be disobeying his father if he refused you and you came to him. And if you know him at all, you might know that how reluctant, how much he will not ever, ever do that. If I cannot convince you that he would delight to receive you, which he would, maybe I can convince you that he has to receive you, which, which he also does. And all does he want to. He's been given instructions by his father to receive you. So, so I just plead with you, come. Don't, don't let the lack of trust that he would receive you keep you from coming to him. All that is keeping you away is your own doubt of his goodness. So cast that doubt aside. Come to him and trust him. That means to somebody who has committed some unthinkable sin, I mean a sin that even the world around us does not glorify, that if you told people about, you'd be kicked out of society for, even someone who has done something like that, if they would come to Jesus Christ, Jesus would look to them and say, my father gave you to me. I will hang on to you and I will never cast you out. That means for somebody on the total opposite side of the spectrum, somebody who's been coming to church for for decades and has heard the gospel preached and maybe even got baptized at one point, but knows in their heart that the whole time it's been a show, the whole time it's been fake, and they know they're living in hypocrisy. And and they're saying to themselves, well, after years of passing on hearing the gospel and pretending to be a Christian, I can't come forward now, right? I mean, I've passed on him too many times and he wouldn't receive me because I've said no to him too many times. But the truth is, if you would come to him anyhow, Jesus would say, my father's given you to me and I will hang on to you until the end. I will never let you go. I have received you and I will raise you up on the last day. So the question we might ask is, okay, what does it mean to come to him, right? Right? Like, where is he? Where do I go? I can't see him. How do I get to where he is? How do I go to him? Uh, a whole lot of us have been confused because we thought that coming to him means coming down an aisle. And so we think, well, where's the aisle? How do I go? How do I get there? How do I go to him? And, and for others of us, it's just a, a confusion because we read the scriptures and we say, okay, well, the rich young ruler came to him 
and said, you know, can I follow you? And Jesus basically said no, and the rich young ruler went away sad. Like, there are people who go to Jesus, and he turns them away. So, so what does it mean to come to him, and how can I be sure that I have come to him and I have received eternal life? Well, we see the answer to that question in, in verse 40. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, so who gets eternal life? Who gets to be raised up on the last day? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. That's another way to say what it means to come to Jesus, to see him for who he is and believe in him. You can separate that into two pieces if you want to, seeing him and believing in him. When it says seeing in him, it doesn't necessarily mean literally. You don't have a vision of him in your head or see him appear to you, but he reveals himself on, in the pages of this book. And if you read it enough and or hear it preached enough, you'll start to get an essential picture of who Jesus is at the core, right? He's God-made man. He died. He rose. He did this to save us from our sins. You get, a, you get a picture, a sense of who he is. That's seeing him, right? God has revealed to you who Jesus is and how you see him. And he says to believe in him, right? So not only are you seeing what the Bible says, you're seeing it accurately, you're seeing that he really is God, he's seeing he really has saved us, but you're looking to him and saying, Jesus, I need you to be all of those things, and I trust you to be everything you say you are, right? I have confidence that you are who you say you are. So seeing him for who he really is and believing what he has revealed about you is what it means to look upon the Son and believe in him. Anyone who has done that, he says, that that is what the Bible calls faith, right? Faith that he is who he says he is. Anyone who has done that, he says, receives eternal life. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I want to come to Jesus, or you're thinking, did I ever come to Jesus? Like, have I, have I ever done that? Well, let me just simply ask you, do, do you see who he is here on the page? And do you trust him to be who he says he is here on the page? Do you sense that you need him to be that for you? If you do, then friend, you see him and you believe in him and have assurance, have confidence. He will raise you up on the last day if you can see who he is and if you believe in him. That's what it means to have faith in him. Let's take this back to the big problem we talked about earlier. All right. One of your biggest problems, right, is, is coming death, certain death. Some of us in the room feel that more than others, right? Some of us are still young and invincible and convinced it's not going to happen to us. Uh, some of us are still getting stronger every time we exercise. We don't realize the day is coming where we're going to exercise so that we slow down more slowly, so that we decline more slowly, right? But there's a little bit of nagging in the back of our head that death is coming for us. And others of us would, would make no denial of it, right? We know it's coming. We feel it in our bodies, right? We're all in different places with that. One way or another, we know it's coming. And the good news of this text comes in verses 39 and 40 for those of us that know and would admit that our death is coming. Let me read 39 and 40 for you. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that may have sounded like he said the same thing twice. That's because he said the same thing twice. You're reading that correctly, if that's how you're feeling that, right? Those that look to him and trust him, he says, my Father's will is that I not lose any of them and that I raise them up on the last day. For the last hundred years or so, this has kind of been a neglected teaching in the church. And we'll talk in a minute about how that's moved us to place our hope in some places where maybe aren't as good as where it could be. But what the Bible teaches is that when Christians die, our spirits, or our souls at least, are gathered up. And maybe we have a new body there in heaven, maybe we don't. It's tough to tell with some of, uh, some of those texts, but we're gathered up to heaven to be with Jesus. And he is essentially holding there everyone who has ever died with faith in him, there with him in heaven, at least in spirit, maybe in some form of body as well. And it's essentially the greatest waiting room of all time. It's not final destination, right? It's just a holding area, like a, like a queue that we're just waiting in until Jesus comes back. Then he takes all of our souls and puts them back in our bodies, gives us new resurrected bodies, raises us from the dead in those bodies, and then makes a new heavens and new earth. We dwell here with him forever in new bodies under a new heavens, in a new earth, under the great King Jesus himself. That, that's, the, that's the end of things. Heaven is a holding area that's fantastic, like I'll take it, it's going to be good, where we wait for those things to happen. The emphasis that Jesus gives here is on how many of these believers will he raise from the dead? How many of the people who trust him will he raise from the dead? His emphasis here, all of them, right? Every last one of them. I had a seventh grade English teacher who said a lot of really memorable things, and one of them was, how many times do you underline the title when you're writing a paper by hand? Anybody know the answer? Every time, that's what she said. How many times do you underline the title? Every time, right? Sandy's smiling, she probably taught somebody that. <laughs> so uh, in the same way, how many believers are going to be risen from the dead on the last day? Every last one of them. He says, my father's will, but I won't lose one of them. That means, I mean, Revelation says the sea will give up its dead, right? The Pacific Ocean is vast. I mean, it looks like it's like half the globe when you look at it. It's probably a third of the world or something. How many sailors since the death of Jesus Christ died with their faith in him, just you know, tragically fell overboard with their faith in him, their body lost forever? How many of them, their bodies just somewhere at the bottom of that ocean? The amazing thing here is Jesus says, it's my Father's will that I won't lose one of them, right? He knows where all of their bones are. He knows where all of their remains are. He says, I'm not losing one. And when I come back, I'm not going to say, now, where did I put her, right? Where did I put him? No, he knows where every last one of them are. Some of you I know uh, fought for our country in, in war overseas, and you know all too well that there are some soldiers who lost their dog tags before they lost their life, right? And, and no one knows where they are or who they are. Uh, we've got a tomb of an unknown soldier in Washington, D.C., don't we? Jesus looks down from heaven and says, for those that have faith in me, I, I didn't lose one of them, 
right? I didn't lose their tags. I know exactly where all of them are. And he says, I will raise up every last one of them on the last day when I come back. That is a better picture of eternity than a lot of us hope in, right? When I talk to a lot of Christians, we'll say things like, well, I just can't wait to be in heaven and be with Jesus and be up there forever, right? And some of us, it's, you know, my grandpa's going to be there, my wife's going to be there, I just can't wait to be up in heaven. And in some ways, that is good because it's going to be fantastic. We should look forward to it. But the Bible doesn't place our hope in that intermediate heaven where we're being held for a little while before he comes back. The Bible places our hope in the resurrection of the dead and in eternal life living here with him forever. That's what we ought to look forward to most, the day when he comes back and we get to live here forever with him like that. That's a better hope that spurns us on to do good works here because we realize that what we do here matters because we're all coming back to this planet, although it'll be destroyed and made new still, what we do here matters. Why? Because Jesus is coming back and he's raising us from the dead. What an incredible thing. Now, if you can see that, Right, if you can place, as the Apostles' Creed place your hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that's how the Apostles' Creed puts it. Can you see how small all of our troubles really are? Can you see what Paul means when he says, I consider our present difficulties not worth comparing the, to the glory that will be revealed in us? Right? All the things that we are worried about, all the things that we are sad about, It's not that they're not real. They're real, and they really hurt. But the glory that will be revealed in us through Jesus Christ on his return is so much greater that it overshadows all of them. And so many of these difficulties we place on ourselves because we forget about the resurrection of the dead, and we forget to place our hope there. If your outlook on life is, I only get one life and then I'm done, well, very quickly it turns into, well, I better have the best marriage on the face of the earth because this is my only one, right? We better get this really, really, really right because we'll never have another chance to do this. And my one career, I better really make a lot of money and have an awesome career and have a great impact on the world. And all of a sudden you're sitting there as a freshman in college thinking there is so much pressure on me to have an awesome life and I have no idea how to soak up every good thing and do all the things well and live this great, fantastic life and then die but but the resurrection of the dead just turns all of that upside down you make it to 35 and god hasn't given you a spouse yet and you don't have to despair because you don't just have one life and then you're done no i've got eternity with jesus christ all right this is just the training camp for what is coming and whatever the lord gives to me i can i can go through this because i've got a better thing coming the pressure to have your, your one career be awesome and fantastic and to soak up every good thing and do every good thing, the resurrection of the dead just, just changes all of that. Now we've got eternal hope and eternity to do good works with Jesus Christ. It, it is so much easier to accept the difficulties that God has put in this life when we have our hope placed in the next life where everything sad becomes untrue and we get to live forever with him. Something of what Jesus means when he says, I won't lose one of them and I'll raise them up on the last day. 
So as we look at nativity scenes and, and candles and sing Christmas songs, uh, as we go through all of the Christmas joys for the next week, let's keep in mind, why, why'd the Lord do all this? Why'd he send his son to earth? One reason was to guarantee beyond shadow of the doubt your resurrection from the dead if you would come to him in faith. And so my call to you is come to him in faith. Let's pray together.